I think back to uh, my early days in Wales, growing up in a land in which we still have a monarch. And one of the benefits of a monarch, if I may just say for a moment, not in any political way, just as, uh, as neutral an observation as I can make, is that uh, the monarch is outside, at least in the United Kingdom, outside a political discussion. And so the monarch is one around whom every fantastic. And I remember growing up in Wales, the day in which our monarch came to a small town. And the school teacher walks into the classroom in the primary school. Perhaps this is an experience with which the young children here can relate. And the teacher says, we've got some exciting news for you today. And we're all eager to find out what is the exciting news. Well, Her Majesty is coming to the town. And we won't have classes this morning. We're all going to walk down to the center of the town, and we're going to greet the queen. Well, we're all buzzing in the classroom. Can't quite remember whether we were buzzing because we had lectures off or classes off, or because the queen was coming, a bit of both, I'm sure. And so the teachers organize us, and we walk down into the center of the town, two by two, teachers ensuring that we don't wander off, we keep in file, we cross the road safely, but we all are given a flag, and there we wait with the inhabitants of the town for the queen to come, the monarch of the country. Is she here yet? Is she here yet? And then the buzz riffles through the crowd. She's coming, she's coming. And there, she gets out of her royal car. She greets some of the people of the town, the mayor. Some children give her flowers. She has come. That's something of the excitement then that we ought to have as we think of the coming of the king. The buzz, the excitement, the focus, the attention upon someone who is so much greater than Queen Elizabeth II, someone who is so much more powerful and, yes, so much more gracious as well. And it's in that sense, then, that we come to Matthew, Matthew's gospel tonight. We're dealing with the gospel, the first gospel of the New Testament, and the main theme of this entire gospel is the kingdom of heaven. And in these opening chapters of Matthew's gospel, the question is this, who is this king? Matthew is writing primarily for Jewish readers, and he wants to remind them that Jesus was the king promised from Old Testament times. And he wants the Jewish people to understand that it is to Jesus that they must give allegiance. And so, as you come into Matthew's gospel, you find out three things about the king before you even come to Matthew's gospel in chapter 2. The first thing we learn is from the very opening verse of this gospel is that he's an authentic king. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son 
of David, the son of Abraham. Well, immediately we learn then that he is of royal descent. And not only that, that he is the promised Messiah, the promise which was given to David, which we read of in some of the most important verses of the Old Testament, namely 2 Samuel 7, 12 and 13. There we remember how David wanted to build a temple, and initially Nathan the prophet gives his acquiescence. Yes, that's a good idea, David. But then Nathan is informed that, no, David is a man of war, so he's not going to build the temple, but one is going to come after him who's going to build the temple. And thus we come to 2 Samuel 7, 12 and 13, this wonderful promise, this mighty promise given to David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom, and he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And so at last, now, Jesus has come as the promised king. And that's why the genealogy then in uh, Matthew's gospel in chapter 1 is so important. Fourteen generations from Abraham to David. Fourteen generations from David to the exile into Babylon. Fourteen generations from the deportation to Babylon to the coming of Jesus. And so we read in verse 17, so all the generations from Abraham to David were fourteen generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, fourteen generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, fourteen generations generations. He's an authentic king. He has the credentials to be the king. That is really important to the Jewish people because they knew the Scriptures and they needed to understand that Christ, who came as king, comported with what was taught in the Old Testament. But it's also important for those who are Gentiles. Why is that? Because if God cannot keep His promise in the Old Testament, then God cannot keep His promise. And so we as Gentiles who then enter into this line of faith, first revealed to the Jews, need to know that the Scriptures are utterly trustworthy. He's an authentic king. And then secondly, we learn from the opening chapter is that He's a powerful king, verses 18 through 21. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child, this is important, from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph. Son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. He's a powerful king. Why is he so powerful? Because he is from the Holy Spirit. Twice it said that. He's a powerful king. Because his birth is heralded by a message from 
an angel of the Lord. Now, we've been hearing over recent weeks about the angel of the Lord, but this isn't Christ in a pre-incarnate form because He cannot be in the womb of Mary and making the announcement at the same time. So, this is an angel of the Lord speaking forth that a powerful king is coming. And wherein lies his power? His power is spiritual. He shall save his people from their sins. No earthly monarch can do that. We live in an age of constitutional monarchs tied in, hemmed in by constitutions of the land, laws of the land. Queen Elizabeth II has never turned down a law that Parliament has passed since 1707. She is a constitutional monarch. But here in Jesus, we have a powerful monarch, but he channels his power, not in dictatorship, not in aggression, not in corruption, not in immorality, but in order that he may save men and women from their sins. Here in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, we esteem highly a professor by the name of John Murray. And if you go to see his grave in the north of Scotland, as much as he is esteemed by men, the grave is very simple. He gives his name. And underneath, Matthew 1, 21, you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. He's a powerful, powerful king. He can do greater things than the most powerful head of state can do. He can do what nobody else can do. And so we are talking this evening with great joy that the king is come because he is the only one who can do what we need him to do, but don't deserve for him to do. And so, although this passage is very familiar to us tonight, I am mindful that in any given congregation, there might be those who are in the church, but not in Christ, and therefore not in a relationship with God, because you are yet to bow before this King. You are yet to embrace the power that is His to save your soul to the uttermost. The third thing we learn about him is that he's a unique king, and it explains why he's so powerful, verses 22 and 23. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. The first of 47 quotations of the Old Testament found in Matthew's gospel. And here is the great unfolding of the message of God's presence with His people from Old Testament times. First of all, God's people were given the tabernacle, a movable tent, and all the instructions were given them so that they would understand just how important God's presence would be in their midst. And then the history of redemption carries on. And then there's the pattern of the temple given, a fixed structure, a great structure, the closest place to which a person could get to heaven outside of heaven itself. 
But now Christ comes, and He is God with us. And so God is not only offering us forgiveness through Jesus Christ, but He's offering us relationship with Him. And so He comes seeking us, the ones who are lost, but in coming, Jesus Christ calls us to pursue Him. So having looked then at this authentic King, this uh, powerful King, and this divine King, it's in that context then that we come into chapter 2. And here we find that a relationship with God begins with a meeting with the King. We're told three things then, and I'm especially mindful to address any here tonight who as of yet are outside of a relationship with God. You may be wondering what is entailed in a relationship with God. How can I have a relationship with God? Mom or dad say they're in relationship with God. My brother, my sister, they say they're in a relationship with God. But I don't know that for myself. So how can I know that I am relating to God? How can I enter this relationship that so many people in the pews around me say that they have with the God of all the earth? And if that's what's going on in your mind tonight, that's what's going on in your heart, then this passage is a wonderful passage to tell you very straightforwardly how you too may have a relationship with God. The first thing we learn is this, that the meeting with the king entails seeking him, verses 1 and 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Jesus then was born amongst the Jews in the days of Herod the Great. Herod the Great lived from 73 BC to 4 BC. And yet already in the gospel, we have gleaned the fact that Jesus Christ is not relevant simply for the Jews although he certainly is that. Because if you go back to the genealogy, you will find that in the line of Jesus, there is at least one Gentile mentioned there. Recall Ruth, the Moabites, who was the great grandmother of King David. And you can compare Ruth 4, 17 and Matthew 1, verse 5. And so as we come into chapter 2, it's the Gentiles who are to the fore in seeking this king. And notice three characteristics of their seeking. The first is that they have an inquiring mind. They've come all the way from the east, and they have this burning question. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Well, how have they heard of this king? Well, they probably heard about it from the exiles, and the expectation they had that a Messiah was coming, and He was coming to God's ancient people. And there are two alternatives which are given as to where this expectation could have been heard of. The first is in the cities of the Medes, modern-day Iran. Because if you go back to 2 Kings 17.6, you find that in the days of King Hoshea, king of Israel, there was an exile as the 
northern kingdom falls. There was an exile, and they were taken to the cities of the Medes. But they took with them their hope that a Messiah was coming. And it's one possibility that it was from those who were in the cities of the Mede, near modern-day Tehran in Iran, that they heard that a Messiah was going to come. Another alternative dates back to two centuries later, and those who were exiled with the fall of the southern kingdom of Judah in Babylon. You can read the book of Daniel, where there you read of the Jewish exiles and how in the days of Babylon they lived amongst those who were astrologers and magicians. There's something very instructive for us there, that even if our personal witness does not immediately lead to conversions to Christ. It is for us to so pique the interest of others in the Lord Jesus Christ that others are stimulated to say, who is this Christ of whom my neighbor makes so much? Who is this Christ of whom my relative makes so much. Who is this Christ of whom my colleague makes so much? But if you yourself are the inquirer, I want to say to you tonight that you have far more to go by than the Magi ever had to go by. You have clearer revelation. You have greater certainty of revelation because it's now found in the Scriptures. And I'm saying to you that one of the hallmarks of those who truly seek to meet the King is an inquiring mind given by God so that we run down the hints that we're given. We run down the suggestions given to us by the witness of believing people. And we do not give up until we found out about the Christ. Isn't this something that's uh, so beautiful about the testimony of Lee Strobel? Some of you may have seen the film about his conversion to Christ, which has been out of late. His wife claims to be a Christian. That's not why I married my wife. What am I going to do with the fact that here I am working as a journalist for the Chicago Tribune, cynical as anything, having to face up to the fact that my wife, horror of horrors, says she's a Christian. Well, I'm an investigative journalist, so I'm going to find out about this. And I quickly boil it down to the fact that either Jesus rose from the dead, and you can discount everything else, or he didn't rise from the dead, and I can carry on as I am. And I'm saying to us as believers that these are the lives that we must live in order to stir those around us to say, who is this Jesus that these Christians are so obsessed with? And if you're outside a relationship with God, who is this Jesus and what relevance does he have for me? Because there are people all around me who center their lives all upon Jesus Christ. And am I missing something? An inquiring mind. The second evidence of true seeking is an effective will, affected will. 
These were the intelligentsia of the day. But they didn't simply sit upon what they learned. If you look at a map, these wise men traveled 1,100 miles at least. And they're carrying precious cargo, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And if you look on a map, you'll find that they traveled through Iran. They then traveled through Iraq. They then traveled through the modern country of Jordan. And then they come to Jerusalem. This burning, burning question. You see, this is what a work of God in the soul of a man or a woman will do. I'm reminded tonight of my dear friend uh, Rahi Sultani, who's one of our board members on From His Fullness, former colleague at Seventh Reformed Church. Growing up on the border of Iran and Afghanistan, a very devout Muslim father. And so from a young age, he decides to study the Quran, be a good Muslim like his father. But then he comes into his teenage years, and it's not very satisfying. And so he goes the other way, and he says, well, maybe my happiness is found in science. Maybe my happiness is found in just studying nature. And that doesn't satisfy him. And so he comes across a book, and uh, the book is all about psychology. And he says, well, maybe that's what I need to do. And so he starts studying psychology as he becomes a, a young man. And it seems to work for a while. And then he realizes he's no better off than he was before. And in the meantime, he goes and he gets married. And in the midst of his marriage, this is amazing to me, his wife allows him, Lily, allows him to go to India for a year, 18 months, to study at the feet of a guru. Because they have decided that knowing the truth is massively important, and he cannot live without knowing the truth. And so he goes and he sits at the feet of this guru. Lily waits for him. And then he comes back and he realizes that it's not there either. And he's a political cartoonist drawing caricatures of Iranian leaders, not exactly known for their sense of humor. And so he has to leave Iran, and he goes to Dubai. And he's doing his caricatures, and then he comes to Cyprus. And he is led to the faith by one, if not two, believers. And you see, if you're outside a relationship with God, that is evidence of true seeking. Oh, I hear Pastor Bob speak this sermon. I hear Pastor Bob speak that sermon. This one touches me. That one not so much. This one even more so. But you see, I've been coming to Little Farms Church for all this time. I'm sitting on all this education that I've heard from my parents, my Sunday school teachers, my pastor, but I've never gone and sought out whether it's true or not. I just sit on it. Isn't that what we're meant to do? Just sit on it. Not so the wise men. They're not going to give up until they've found the king of the Jews. And so thirdly, True seeking is characterized by a humble heart. We're not told that these magi are kings, but the word magi has a connection with the word great. And here is the work of God in their lives, that while they will get plenty out of King Jesus, that's not what they say to Herod. 
show us where the king of the Jews is because we want him to top up our lives. We have everything else, but we just need him to be the icing on the cake. No. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? That we may come and worship him. You see the work of God that's already begun in their lives? One has said that humility is the repentance of pride. And although they are great in their own culture, although they are great in their own community, they realize that life does not consist in their greatness. But there is this King, this Messiah, and we must worship Him. That is where satisfaction is found. That is the very purpose of our lives. And we are not going to rest until we have met the King. So I'm asking you tonight, does this resonate with where you're at? If you are yet to be in a relationship with God, meeting the King entails seeking Him. And I dare suggest if we could break off the service for a moment and say, let's have people come up and give their testimonies. I dare say that many of the testimonies here would come to a point at which I came to in my own life, having grown up in the Christian church, having grown up with a Presbyterian minister for a father. And the light bulb's going on. And the recognition that this storehouse of sermons that I've been given, this storehouse of Sunday school lessons, is not simply for me to be the egghead in the class at school who knows the Bible inside out. But so that I can begin to search for God through Jesus Christ in the wonderful knowledge that He has come first seeking me. That He's not the one who's lost. I'm the one who's lost. And so secondly, this evening we notice that meeting the King entails discovering Him. Verses 2 through 9. Herod is a political genius, he's a great architect, and he's a builder, but he's very, very agitated. Well, why is he agitated? Well, they've just spoken about another king. And although he himself has claimed to be part of Jewish aristocracy, he's nothing of the sort. His father was an Idumean from Edom, a neighboring kingdom. His mother was a Nabataean. And so when the wise men say, where's he who's been born? King of the Jews. He's immediately reminded that this king has more authenticity than he does. And so insecure, paranoid is this king that recently has killed his wife or had her killed and sons. He's put down the Sanhedrin. Now that things seem to be evening out, these men come from these saying, where is he who's been born? King of the Jews. Yet God overrules the agitation of Herod. And two clues arise as to how these wise men may find King Jesus. And the first is general revelation, verse 2. They've mentioned the star, his star even. It's not clear why they connect the star with Jesus' birth. There was a rabbinical legend that there was a brilliant star which appeared the night in which Abraham was born. They may also have been interpreting 
albeit wrongly, Numbers 24, 17, there shall come forth a star out of Jacob, which was a figurative prophecy, which they may have taken literally. Regardless, Herod takes seriously the word of the star. And so when we come to verse 7, he summons the wise men secretly and ascertains from them what time the star had appeared. So the star up until this point is not a miracle. But it is when we come to verse 9, because the star that they saw in the east appears again. They went on their way. Behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. This is a wonderful truth. That if you're outside a relationship with God tonight, and you're wondering how you may meet Him, and you meet Him through Jesus Christ, and the first thing you need to understand is that God has been speaking to you throughout the entire course of your life without letting up for a moment. He has been speaking to you. He has been calling to you. Listen to Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. And the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech. What does that mean? It means that God is speaking to you through nature every single day. And night to night reveals knowledge. In other words, God is speaking through nature all day. You cannot get up in the middle of the night and go and watch the stars and it's as if you learn that God actually went to bed at 9 o'clock, and He's getting up again at 9 a.m. He continues to speak all day, all night. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. In other words, there's nobody who can say, well, actually, God is speaking through nature all day, all night, just not to me. To everyone. Verse 4, their voice goes out throughout all the earth and their words to the end of the world. You can't say, well, actually, tomorrow I'm getting on a plane and I'm going to Timbuktu. And although God might be speaking to me in the dark night sky surrounding Little Farms Chapel, when I get off the plane in Timbuktu, He will have stopped speaking to me because the plane is going to take me beyond God's capacity to speak to me. No, all day, all night, to everyone, in every place. This is the significance of the star, that if you are outside of a relationship with God and you want to meet God, then understand this, that every moment of your waking life, your sleeping life as well, God is speaking. But he doesn't stop with special, general revelation. He goes on to special revelation. Notice what happens here. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And so what does he do? Well, he calls an emergency session of the Sanhedrin. And he says to them, now listen, these wise men have come from the east and they say, a king has been born who's king of the Jews. Now you better be able to help me here. We've been through rocky waters I've had to shore up my power. I've had to kill members of my family, a bit like Kim Jong-un from North Korea. 
you've got to help me. And so, here are these highly religious people. They roll out the scrolls and they say, this is your answer. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. In Bethlehem of Judea. Wow, Bethlehem of Judea, that's only five miles away. This is where the king's going to be born. This is serious business. My reign is under threat. And so, having had the public meeting of the Sanhedrin, hurriedly arranged, Herod comes back to them, verse 7. He holds a private meeting with them. Well, tell me. Tell me where the star, what time the star appeared, and I'll come and worship him too. You just tell me where he is, and I'll come. I'll do obeyance as well. So he sent them to Bethlehem, say, go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. Behold, a star that they had seen when it rose before them, until it came to rest over the place where the child was. It's a tremendous truth here, that although God speaks to you all day, all night, to everyone without exception, and in every place, God has confirmed His general revelation, typified here by the star through special revelation. He's given us the Scriptures. And what do the Scriptures do? Well, the Scriptures confirm the message of the star. The Scriptures clarify the revelation of the Messiah. He is coming indeed. The Scriptures add to general revelation. This King who is coming is authoritative, as authoritative as you, Herod, but with this difference. He is using His power to save. You are using your power to destroy. And through this wonderful combination of general revelation, the star on the one hand, Special revelation, the Scripture on the other. These wise men come to King Jesus. Again, let me say to you, if you are outside a relationship with God, do not say to yourself, well, you see, Jesus is some figure out there. I've just not been given the tools to find Him. I've not been given the map. Somehow other people have what I don't have, and therefore they can find Jesus, but I'm still wrestling around, wondering how I may in the world come to meet King Jesus. I want to say to you tonight, God has given you all you need to meet the King. General revelation. Stop paying attention to the world in which we live. Special revelation. Start picking up the Scriptures and saying, it's not enough simply when Pastor Bob pronounces the benediction at the end of the service. Good, I can close my Bible and go home, and it's going to collect dust until the next time I happen to be in this place. No, no. What do you do? You take the Bible, and you follow up the sermon. Is everything I hear according to the Word of God? And who is this Jesus that we keep hearing about? Why is it so important? Why must I meet Him in order to meet God? And as you take out the Scriptures and offer a prayer before you do so and say, God, if you were there, 
show me yourself. You are speaking to me in nature all the time. But I need to see Jesus, and I need to meet Jesus, and I recognize that he's not the one who's lost. He is with his parents. He is where the prophecy says he will be. I'm the one who's lost. You'll find that God answers such a prayer. And as you open the scriptures, and as you say, God, show me your son. Help me to meet him that I may come into your kingdom. You will find that those who so come to God, God will in no wise cast out. And so thirdly then, meeting the king entails worshiping him, verses 10 through 12. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him go gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. By comparison with Luke 2, we know that Jesus is no longer in the stable. The shepherds have long since come and gone. They go into a house, the house. It's a different place. Jesus is still young. And what happens? Well, we notice here what worship entails. First of all, it entails faith. As they look at this baby, they see no halo as on the Christmas cards. They hear no weighty discourse. He does not perform a miracle before their eyes. They have come 1,100 miles, and they just see this bundle of flesh and blood in his full humanity, wriggling, crying, wetting himself. But they believe. J.C. Ryle says, we read of no greater faith in the whole volume of the Bible. They're not trusting their intelligence. They're not trusting their gifts. You may be thinking to yourself, well, they may be able to believe, but I won't or can't. And I put it to you that if these wise men, with the amount of revelation that they have, could believe that Jesus Christ was the king, then you can too. But the issue is this, not whether you can believe upon him, but whether you will believe upon him. Because notice secondly what worship entails. They fell down before him. Again, sometimes the Christmas cards, they have these uh, magi standing with their gifts before him. But the picture we have here is that when they see the baby, they just fall down. These great men in their own cultures, in their own right, they fall down before him. Because you see, what's the, issue at st the issue at stake is this. Whether we are ready to surrender all that we are and all that we have to him. You might say, well, I've been, I've been seeking a relationship with God for many years, many years. But God's never revealed himself to me. I have loved ones who have said this to me. It's just never happened to me. 
And I put it to you that if you're in that situation, the it that has never happened to you is in your lap because you are yet to come to that point. Even if you say that you are ready to believe in Jesus, but you're not willing to collapse upon Him. You're not willing to surrender all that you are and all that you have to Him. Then so long as you go through life thinking you're still the intelligentsia, too intelligent to be a Christian, too rich to be a Christian, too socially acceptable to be a Christian, so long as you go through life with that mindset, one thing is certain, you will never meet Jesus. Humility is the repentance of pride. And then thirdly, true worship entails relationship, verse 12. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. There's something wonderful here, really wonderful. You know, when they set off from modern-day Iran, it was because of a star that was mile-high in the sky. By the time they have met Jesus, God speaks to them personally through a dream. Special revelation as it was then. And this is what worship entails. Faith, surrender, relationship. And so as we close tonight, I want to tell you about my other encounter with Queen Elizabeth II. Quite instructive, actually. The first in primary school. The six, seven, eight-year-old. The second, more personal. Probably my late 20s, 30s. Now a student in Scotland, renting a house about 200 yards from one of her palaces. Holyrood Palace, walking up the Royal Mile towards the castle, towards the Divinity Faculty one night, just my friend and I, our heads down, talking to one another as we walked up the street. And he still had his head down, and I happened to lift my head just at the point at which the queen was coming down in her car with the royal insignia on top of the car. And as I lift my head, to my great surprise, there is Queen Elizabeth II waving to me. And I was so shocked, and I regret this, that I turned around to see who she was looking at. And by the time I turned back around, she was gone. But in that instant, she will write about it in her memoirs, I'm sure. <laughs> her eyes locked on mine as she waved. But a far greater king 
is beckoning to you tonight. And he's saying, come. Come and worship. I will be king of your life. And the result of me being king of your life is that you won't destroy your life. And the result of me being king of your life is that you will have eternal protection from the world, the flesh, and the devil. And there are many Christians tonight here who can testify that that is what Jesus Christ as king means to us. I am so thankful that Christ is king of my life. Because if he weren't, I would have destroyed myself years ago. And perhaps that's your testimony too. And so as we think of King Jesus tonight, the question is this, what is your response? Is it the response of the culture in America today? Who is this Jesus? Because as soon as I find out who this Jesus is and where he is, I'm going to kill him. You can talk about faith. You can talk about God. You can talk about moral values, but don't talk to me about Christ. Because if you talk to me about Christ, I'm going to kill him. That's the response of Herod. Or is your response the response of the chief priests and the scribes? Oh, let's, let's go ahead and open the Bible. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he's going to be born five miles away. But um, we don't see the need to go down the road to Bethlehem. The definition of apathy. I don't know and I don't care. And maybe you've been sitting in church for many years like that, apathetic. Christ is preached faithfully to you morning and night. The scriptures are opened. Oh, yeah, there he is. We see hints of him through the prophecies in the Old Testament, and we see him revealed in the New Testament. But I've never embarked upon a search for him. And it might well be to your eternal indictment that there will be people who never had the advantage of your upbringing in the faith, who have come like the wise men a thousand miles, literally or metaphorically, and who have come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet you've grown up in the Christian church, but have never met Jesus Christ. And therefore, you remain outside the kingdom of heaven. You want a blessed Christmas? Then if you've never searched for the King, I pray that the search may begin tonight. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. Thank you for how instructive it is for us. Thank you for all those here tonight who know the truth of your word, not simply from the pages of Scripture, but from the way in which it has been confirmed in our experience. Thank you for all the work that you have done in our hearts, granting us inquiring minds, effective wills,
others and humility to search and the wonderful realization that Jesus Christ is not lost, we are lost. But he has found us. He has drawn near to where we are and he has come by your powerful grace to save us. Father, for those of us in the kingdom of heaven, may we so be touched afresh by this gospel that we would know a truly blessed Christmas. Christ-saturated Christmas. And Father, we pray for any who may be like Herod, secretly desiring to kill Jesus, or like the chief priests and the scribes, knowing all the answers from the Bible, but never following through to seek him. Oh God, have mercy, we pray, and work by your Spirit that none may go through another Christmas season hearing about the Christ but not knowing him, rejecting his kind rule over our lives. Father, if there are those in whom you are working tonight, we pray that they would go from this place claiming the promises of your word, that you are the rewarder of those who diligently seek you. So follow your word with your blessing, we pray, and we'll give you the glory through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.